Genesis chapter 23, verses 1 through 4, 17 and 20, I mean through 20, and chapter 24. So get ready. (laughs) Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young women to whom I shall say, woman, to whom I shall say, please let down your, your jar that I may drink water, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, Abraham's brother, came out of her came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young maiden, whom no man had known, she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. 
She said, Drink, my lord, and quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my father, my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when he was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife from my, for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to, the, to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free of my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. 
She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camel's drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camel's drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, from whom Milcah bore to him. Milka. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servants heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent Rebekah away, their sister and their nurse, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the men. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Bir Laharoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when he, she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. She, so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Whitefields. That's a long section, huh? That's pretty much as long as it gets in Genesis. So let me uh, fix this real quick, and I'll be ready to go. All right. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray as we study this section. Heavenly Father, we turn our hearts to you now, Lord, and we ask that you give us hearts to hear, open ears, Lord, eyes to see your glory and your greatness. Lord, help us see in these stories, Lord, help us see things that you want to speak into our lives, Lord, as you lead us on the way everlasting. Give us the picture that this is of the gospel, Lord, that we might understand it more. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill us up this morning with your spirit, with your word, that we might overflow with love and joy and peace, your things, to the world around us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we have been looking at this couple, 
Abraham and Sarah for many weeks now. They are a married couple and they are a couple who answered the call of God. God called them to leave the life that they were living and take his hand and walk with him by faith. And after many chapters, which span decades of their marriage together, their life together, today we are going to see the last of Abraham and Sarah. This is the last time we're going to see them together because today we see the first funeral in the Bible. Uh, At the same time that we see the end of one marriage, we also see the beginning of another marriage. Abraham and Isaac's son, or sorry, Abraham and Sarah's son, Isaac, the son of the promise, through whom God is going to bring out that family line through whom will come the Messiah. He gets married in this section. So as we study this section, we're going to be focusing on the topic of marriage. And first we're going to talk about finishing well, like Abraham did. And then we're going to talk about starting well, like Isaac did. And then we're going to bring it full circle and talk about how this all fits in and applies to the gospel and relates to the gospel. So let's begin with talking about finishing well. You know, the book of Genesis covers as much time, uh, as much history, time-wise, as just about the rest of the Bible combined. And much of that time, you know, thousands of years are spent, instead of telling us every little thing that happened, rather God gives us snapshots and vignettes. He zooms in on the lives of certain people, on events that happened in certain people's lives. We started out with a couple, right? the first married couple. We start out with Adam and Eve, and we saw that through them, sin entered the world, and with sin came a curse. And the hallmark of that curse was death. And so for the first 11 chapters of Genesis, what we see is how pervasive the curse of sin is. It affects all people. It causes a breakdown in life. It causes breakdown in society, in relationships. And it separates people from God and from the relationship with God which they were created for. But then in chapter 12, we're introduced to another couple, another married couple, Abraham and Sarah. They're just normal people. They're like everybody else. They're like you and me. They're, they're people who are just living in sin in a fallen world, in a corrupt uh, culture. But God intervenes and makes himself known to them. And he calls them, and Abraham and Sarah answer that call. They respond. And as a result, what does God do? God saves them, and God forgives them of their sins. God loves them, and he befriends them, and he gives them a future and a hope. So what we see is this. From Adam and Eve, we see sin and the curse. And with Abraham and Sarah, we get the covenant and salvation. Abraham and Sarah are super important uh, in the Bible and and in world history. I mean, if you think about it, the the three major world religions all look to him. This is the majority of people in the world who are affiliated with any religion, uh, with these three major religions, they're looking to Abraham as their father. Abraham and Sarah are super important in Genesis. 20%, a little more than 20% of the book of Genesis is taken up with their story. Uh, Abraham is mentioned over 300 times in the Bible, throughout the New Testament as well. And here in the story, we see this couple, Abraham and Sarah, so iconic. We see them for the last time. We have been witness to 62 years of their life and marriage as they've journeyed with God together as a couple. We've seen the highlights when they trusted God, when they obeyed God, when they walked by faith. And we've also seen the lowlights, right? When they didn't... 
trust God when they messed up. And the purpose of all of this, of showing us 62 years of their marriage and life together, their walk with God, is that we would learn from them. We'd learn from their successes so we could imitate their successes, and we'd learn from their failures that we could avoid making those same failures. You know, Isaiah the prophet says this, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and look to Sarah from whom, or Sarah who bore you. You know, just as Adam and Eve are our father and mother according to the flesh, so Abraham and Sarah are our father and mother according to faith. And therefore, they're an example for us of how to live a life of faith, how to walk with God, how to repent of our sin when we, when we mess up. And, and what we see here in chapter 23 is an extremely hard day in the life of Abraham. This is the day when he has to bury his wife, Sarah. And I know that all of us who are, who are married in here, or all of us who have loved ones, we, we think about this day. We think, Am I ever going to have to bury my spouse? That's a heavy thing to think about. And, and you can imagine, this is a heavy day in the life of Abraham. And I want you to see that. Statistically, 91% of people in America will get married at some point in their life. However, roughly 50% of marriages end in divorce. And at any given time, roughly 50% of Americans are single. So what does that tell you? If, if 91% of people get married at some point in their life, but at any given time, just about 50% of Americans are single, and 50% of marriages end in divorce, these aren't really good statistics. And unfortunately, the statistics aren't a whole lot better for professing Christians. Uh, we live in a society that puts a lot of focus on weddings, we put a lot of attention on getting married, right? But we put far less preparation, far less focus into what comes after the wedding day, which is ultimately much more important, and that is the marriage, right? We, uh, we have bridal magazines. We have bridal expos. Uh, we have TV shows about the bachelor and the bachelorette in which a bunch of desperate people do ridiculous things in, in a desperate attempt to get married. But what we don't have is magazines about how to stay married, right? And expos about how to make it, not just from the first day of your marriage, but how to make it to the last day of your marriage when death does you part. People want to get married. I, I heard that there's something like Match.com has something like 800,000 people who pay $25 a, a month to be on Match.com. People want to get together. They want to get married. And they want their wedding day to be perfect, right? They want it to be glorious. You know, and, and that's good because wedding days are important. But as Christians, just as much as we celebrate the first day of a marriage, the, the, the wedding day, we also want to elevate the importance of the last day. We need to elevate the importance not only of the wedding, but of the marriage and the importance of finishing well. And seeing your marriage through by God's grace to the last day when death does you part. And that's not easy, right? As I said, half of marriages, even more than half of marriages, don't make it from the first day to the last day. Because what is marriage, right? You're essentially taking two sinners and tying them together, right? And inevitably, what do they do? They sin against each other. They hurt each other. And you look at that and you might say, well, what's good about that, right? What's the purpose in sticking it out in that case, 
why not just enjoy it while it's good? And then when it gets bad, just jump ship and start over with somebody else, right? Do, do something else. That's exactly how modern society views divorce uh, and, and marriage, right? The highest divorce rates, divorce rates in the world are in Western Europe, and the highest is in Belgium, which has over 70% divorce rate. As of recently in Portugal which was actually one of the last countries to legalize divorce. Until quite recently, actually, it was illegal to uh, get divorced in Portugal. It's still illegal to get divorced in Malta. But Portugal was one of the last countries to legalize divorce, but now they have become the first country in the world to make it possible to get divorced online. So, you know, there's an app for that, probably, you know. So uh, the, the thinking behind it is this. Uh, why stay in a marriage if you're not happy? Who cares about seeing a marriage through to the last day? What's the point in doing that uh, if you're not happy in your marriage? What, what would be the purpose of that? Why do that? Who cares about seeing it through to the last day? And, and what it really brings us back to is the fundamental question of what is the point of getting married at all, Right? What is the purpose of it? And really, this is a question that many people in our society are beginning to ask more and more. It's a question that our society hasn't really been able to answer very well. Society doesn't know what to say to somebody who who doesn't know the Lord and says, well, why should I get married? Well, um, well, I don't know. You just should. That's what people do, you know? Because if you can have all the same legal rights as a married couple without being married, then why go through all the formalities of getting married? Because that just makes it more complicated and expensive if and when you decide to split up when things go south. Because, I mean, it's inevitable that things will go south at some point. So, you know, why go through all these formalities? Why, why make it more complicated? So, of course, what we see as a result, increasingly, is that uh, more and more couples live together, even having families together, without getting married. Um, but whereas modern society doesn't have a good answer for why people should get married and stay married, the Bible does, right? In his word, God tells us what his purpose is and what his design is for marriage. And, and his plan, his design for marriage is this. Marriage is designed to be a picture, an illustration that we get to live out of God's covenant relationship with us, his people. In the Old Testament, God describes himself as a husband, and he describes his people as his wife. And God says he is the true husband, and he loves his people. He is faithful to them. Even when they are unfaithful to him, he remains faithful. He never leaves them. He never forsakes them. He leads them. He provides for them. He takes care of them. He enters into an intimate relationship with them. In the New Testament, the picture of Jesus is the picture of a bridegroom who has come for his bride, which is the church. It's those you and I who have been washed and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And once he has betrothed her, then he goes away to prepare a place for her, right? And then he will return for her one day and take her to his home where the wedding will take place. And after the wedding comes the marriage. And how long does the marriage last? It lasts forever. See, this is the picture. And Paul the Apostle, he expounds on the purpose of marriage as a picture of God's covenant relationship with us in Ephesians chapter 5, one of the greatest passages on marriage. 
So human marriage is designed to be a picture and a reflection of the divine romance, right? Of God's love and his faithfulness to us. Of the loving submission of the bride of Christ to the bridegroom. And of the, you know, love of, and faithfulness of, of the bridegroom to the bride. Another really important biblical principle for marriage is this. The purpose of marriage is not to make you happy, but to make you holy. The purpose of marriage is not just to make you happy, it's to make you holy. Do you ever watch that TV show, The Real World? I don't know if it's still on. If it is, it's probably like in its 55th season or something like that. I'm probably dating myself. But, you know, there was this show on MTV, The Real World. And they would take all these people and make them live in a house together. And the tagline to The Real World, when you turned it on, you know, it would be, find out what happens when people stop being polite and start being real, right? And that's essentially what happens in marriage, right? Uh, Two people up until their wedding day, they're putting their best face forward. They're making sure they look good. They're making sure they smell good. They're on their best behavior. But then they get married, they move in together, and then they stop being polite and they start being real. And you'll see uh, exactly who the other person is. They will see exactly who you are. You'll see each other at your best and at your very worst. You know, putting two sinners in very close quarters. It's like a crucible, right? That, uh, it brings out things which you can hide below the surface when you meet with most people. You know, even at work. You know, you can kind of play it up and do your thing because all you got to do is stick it out for eight hours, right? But then you go home and, you, and you're in this crucible, you know? And it brings out other things that are below the surface that you don't let other people see. So marriage causes you to face and deal with character issues that you would never have to face otherwise. So the primary purpose of marriage is not to make you happy, but to make you holy. And if you view marriage that way, then that directly affects the conclusions you make about marriage. You know, because most of our society, right, like I said, even, even I believe many Christians, we are under the impression that the primary purpose of marriage is to make you happy. But then, then what, right? What if your marriage no longer makes you happy? What if you no longer find it fulfilling? Well, then what? What are you going to do then? Well, if you follow that kind of thinking, if the purpose of marriage is to make you happy, well, then you're not happy anymore. Then you have no reason to stay together any longer. So people don't, for that very reason. But if you view marriage rather as a reflection, as a a living illustration of the love and faithfulness and servant heart of God, then the, the purpose of marriage is to teach you how to be more like Jesus and have the heart of God to teach you how to forgive, to teach you how to love sacrificially, to teach you how to be faithful, to make you aware of your shortcomings so that you can bring those to God and ask him to work in your life and transform you into his image, well, if that's the purpose of marriage, then you have a reason to stick with it when things get tough. You have a reason to be in it for the long haul. Then the basis for your not jumping ship when things get hard, you have, you have a reason not to. So think about this man, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah. They were not perfect people, right? Abraham essentially blew up his marriage twice. He gave his wife away to two different men, and God brought her back. It's almost as if Abraham is saying, I don't want her anymore. He's saying, I don't want you. And Sarah is kind of like, 
yeah, I'm kind of cool with that too. I don't really, I'm, I'm okay with going off with somebody else and, you know, doing something different. But God sovereignly intervenes and brings them back together. And he's telling them, you may not want each other anymore, but let me tell you this, you need each other. I'm doing something bigger, something more profound in your life than just making you happy by putting you together. I'm making you holy. You know, Abraham wasn't a perfect husband, not by any stretch of the imagination. Neither was Sarah a perfect wife. Uh, What we get the impression of is that she made Abraham's life very hard, actually. You remember that she created this whole thing with Hagar, and then she was the one who was fighting with Hagar. So essentially, you got this man living with these two women who hate each other's guts, who are at each other's throat, and he's in the middle. That's uncomfortable. That had to be hard. In the Bible, in other words, it doesn't give us a a Norman Rockwell idealistic portrait of marriage. It gives us reality, and that's helpful for us because we're real people who live in the real world where people sin, even people who sincerely love Jesus. So maybe you hear all this and you say, that sounds like a bummer, right? Are you telling me that God doesn't want me to be happy? Are you telling me that God doesn't care that I would be happily married? He just wants me to be holy even if it makes me miserable? Well, that's not it either. See, see, here's the, here's the basic fundamental issue that's at stake here. This is what the Bible teaches, is this. Holiness leads to happiness. Holiness leads to happiness. If you want to be happy... The way to experience and enjoy deep, lasting happiness is through holiness. You know, what is holiness? Think about it. It's the absence of sin, right? And it's more than that, too. It is wholeness. It is completeness. It is when you lack nothing. That's what it means when it talks about that God is holy. He's complete. He lacks nothing. And you know what is the root cause, what we see in the Bible, of pain and suffering? It's sin. So what that means is this. The, the more holy we are, the more we become like Jesus, the happier we will be. Because there will be less sin in our lives, and that directly affects the fact there will be less junk in our lives to deal with. There will be less pain and suffering, and therefore more joy and peace and happiness. So the answer is this. Yes, God wants you to be happy in your marriage, but the pathway to true happiness is holiness. You know, this is something that God's word teaches very clearly. It's something that Jesus taught very, very uh, directly. Even in Jesus' day, like there is today, people had this tendency to assume that the primary purpose and goal of life is to make yourself happy. But the problem with that is that chasing after happiness is like trying to catch the wind. You can never attain it. You can never take hold of it. And furthermore, in in seeking to make themselves happy, many people also cause pain to other people. So that can't be the, the way to go about things. What Jesus told people is this. In, in Mark chapter 8 and, and throughout the Synoptic Gospels, he said this. If you really want to find true life, the way to do it is to stop living for yourself. He said whoever tries to save his own life, they will lose it. It's like chasing after the wind. But whoever gives up his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will find true life. That's the irony, right? If your primary objective is to find and attain happiness, to make yourself happy, it's like trying to chase the wind. 
You never find it. You never grasp it. Never take hold of it. But if you actually give up that, you stop living for yourself, you die to yourself, and rather choose to live to please God and to serve others and bless others, then what you actually find is the true abundant life and happiness that your heart really longs for. And that's kind of ironic. It seems kind of backwards, but it's the truth. It's what God's word teaches us. In other words, don't strive to be happy. Rather, I mean, because that's just going to leave you unfulfilled and frustrated. You're not going to find what you're looking for. But rather, instead of striving to be happy, desire to be holy. And as you become more holy, you know what will happen? You become more happy, more content, more fulfilled. So holiness, again, not only benefits you, but it benefits everyone who's connected to you. So here's the point. God does care very much about your happiness, and that is why God desires that you would be holy as he is holy. Marriage is God's program for you to share in and learn his heart. And in becoming more like him and becoming more holy, that ultimately leads to you being more happy. But you got to get those two in the right order. So what we see here is this man Abraham, after decades of being married to this woman whom he loves— Now he has to let her go, and he's saying goodbye to her. And we read that Abraham mourned and he wept. He shed tears. These are the first tears recorded in the entire Bible. This is the first time we see anyone cry. It's it's a man who knows God, a man who has hope in God, and he's a man of faith, and he is mourning the loss of his wife, whom he dearly loves. You know, it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, that we who are believers, we who have the hope of eternal life, we don't mourn in the same way as those who do not have the hope of eternal life. But we still mourn. Why? Because we know innately that we were created to live forever. And death is an enemy. And deep down we we know that death is not right. It's a sign of the curse that we're under. And it separates us, even if for, uh, you know, for a time, it separates us from the ones that we love. So these first tears in the Bible right here, what do they do? They point us towards the last tears in the Bible, which are found in the book of Revelation. When at the end of all things, when all of God's promises are full and complete, it says there that God will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more crying Because there will be no more sin. There will be no more death. There will be no more curse. The only thing that will remain is the covenant. That's the day that we're looking forward to. So Abraham buys this plot of land in Machpelah. This is the only land that Abraham will ever own in the promised land. And this will be the family burial site for years to come. It's still there to this day, actually. You can see this place in the Middle East. It's, it's actually covered by a Muslim holy site, so you can't go into it. But uh, it's there. It's the place where Abraham and Isaac are buried. It's the place where Rebekah is buried, Jacob and Leah, and even Joseph are all buried in this cave. And it's still there to this day. So we see the importance of finishing well in, in marriage as we see the last day of Abraham's marriage. But now we turn to the idea of starting well in in marriage as we look to the first day of of Isaac and Rebecca's marriage. And as we go through this story, what I'd like to do is just follow along in the story in in your Bibles. And I'd like to point out a few principles about finding a godly spouse and starting a godly relationship. So as we look at how Isaac and Rebecca meet and get married, we can't help but notice how different it is 
from the kind of dating that has been popularized in our culture and our society. And part of the reason for that is that this happened 4,000 years ago, and nowadays we don't test our prospective girlfriends by seeing how fast they can water our camels, right? But uh, there are some principles here that are timeless, and we see those here. So, so follow along in chapter 24 if you've got your Bible. Here's the story. Isaac is now 40 years old. He's not married yet. Maybe he's a late bloomer or maybe there's just really hard to find a nice godly lady in the land of the Canaanites where he's living. Nevertheless, it's time for him to get married. So notice what he does. He, uh, he gets his hair done and he goes and puts on his silk shirt and he rolls into town. He finds a hop-in Canaanite nightclub. He drops some sweet pickup lines and he gets some digits. You know, he goes on some dates to see who he's compatible with plays a few girls at the same time. And he finally picks one and decides that they should move in for a few years to see how things go. And after a few, uh, you know, few years, decides that, yeah, he's ready to settle down. And so they make it official, you know? Well, not exactly right, but that, that's what would be pretty normal and accepted and, and common way of going about things in the society that we live in today. This world that we're born into, this popular culture, right, that's portrayed on TVs and movies, uh, that's what it says pretty much. But the danger for us is that we would think that this is normal, that this is just a normal way that people do things. This is a normal way that a guy or a girl meet and then they eventually get married. But what we need to do is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12 where he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what that means is that we don't just follow what our culture is doing, but we evaluate it. We evaluate it on the basis of God's word, and we look and say, well, what does God say about how I should go about finding a spouse and getting married? So here's the first principle. I'm gonna, I got seven principles here. The first principle is this. Don't date for no reason, but look for a spouse, you young people, don't date for no reason, but look for a spouse. Isaac didn't date Rebecca. He married her. You know, he, he didn't date a bunch of other girls at the same time. He wasn't looking for a girlfriend. He was looking for a wife. He wasn't just looking for someone who looked good as a trophy. He was looking for someone who would be a good mother and a godly woman. So, so the reason I say all this stuff is because that was me, right? I was that guy. Even after I became a Christian, until someone helped me to see things differently. Um, I moved to Hungary when I was 18, right? And at the time I moved there, I had a girlfriend back home. And I was in Hungary for like three days when I ended up hanging out with this guy who, who's a pretty well-known pastor from the Northeast. His name's Ken Graves. Maybe some of you have heard his name. Anyway, we got to talking, and I told him about myself, and, and it came out that I had a girlfriend. So, so this guy, this pastor, he tells me, I'm like 18, right? He says, are you going to marry her? And I said, well, how do I know? Maybe. I mean, I'm only 18. And he says, well, if you don't know you're going to marry her, then what are you doing with her? He said, I don't know. I, I like her company. You know, and he said, well, then why do you call her your girlfriend? Isn't she just a friend if you just like her company? And I said, well, you know, maybe I, well, I like her more than a friend, you know. Maybe we'll get married someday. I don't know. I'm not thinking that far ahead, man. I'm just having a good time. I'm 18. And he says, look, in other words, you're wasting your time with her and you're wasting her time because pretty much your only commitment to her is that maybe someday if she gets lucky, you'll make a commitment to her. So you're just kind of playing pretend. 
You're pretending to be a grown-up, but you're not. And he said, that's very selfish of you. I met this guy like five minutes ago, right? And he's like, that's very selfish of you. He said, if you actually cared about that person, you, you would care about what's best for her. And you wouldn't just be wasting her time in a relationship that's going nowhere. And, and think about it. She's probably going to end up marrying somebody else, and you're going to marry somebody else. And she's going to be sorry that she wasted all her time with you. And so he said, if you really care about her, then you better break it off until you actually know what you want to do. Well, I had never thought about it that way before, right? Uh, it was like totally surprising. I just did what everybody else around me did, right? You date, you have girlfriends, and you just assume that that's the normal way that people do stuff, right? Uh, but the better way is what God's Word teaches, and that is this. You don't just date for no reason, with no plan, but you look for a spouse. And if you aren't ready to get married, that's no problem. Don't date. And, and when you do get to know someone, do it with the intention of getting married to them, right? And if you decide you don't want to marry that person, well, then don't date them. Don't drag it out. Don't string them along. You're wasting both your time. Here's the second principle. Involve godly people in the process. Notice how this goes down. You got Abraham, Isaac's dad, and then you got Laban, and then you got Bethuel. They're all playing interference here, right? It's not just, you know, Isaac and Rebecca meeting and then, you know, doing their thing. But they have these people, Laban, for example, they sit down, the servant, and they drill him with questions. You know, how's your, how's this guy's 501k, you know what I mean? Or whatever, 401k, I don't, I don't have one, so I don't know, <laughs> you know. So, you know, they want to know, what's his plan? Does he have a degree? You know, we want to know, what's, how are you going to, you going to take care of our daughter? We want to know these kind of things. You really, he walks with the Lord, that's important, you know. And then finally, they give their consent. So involve godly people who love you and who know what's best for you to give objective insight into relationships. Pastors, family members, godly friends, you know, ask them, give them permission to speak into that relationship and keep you accountable. Here's a third principle. Seek the Lord and pray that he would lead you to the right person and reveal his will for you. That's what happened in this story. They prayed, they worshiped, God led them to the right person. Fourth principle, marry a person who loves the Lord, right? Abraham says this, I can't have my son Isaac marrying one of these godless Canaanite girls. He needs a believing wife, one who's going to walk with God alongside him. If you're a believer, God's word makes it clear you shouldn't be romantically connected in any way to unbelievers. And if, you, if you're already married and your spouse is an unbeliever, well, then that's a different story. I'm talking about people who are beginning relationships. Christians should marry Christians. You always hear this one, right? I, you know, in our church in Agar, um, I mean, we had like, you know, 40, 20-year-olds in our church, right? So this was like real pertinent. And you'd always have them come up to, well, I met this guy. And I'm like, well, is he a believer? Well, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't go to church, and he doesn't, like, read the Bible, but he said that he believes in God, so, so we're gold, right? We're golden, we're set. Well, um, Satan also believes in God, but he's not a Christian, right? You don't want him to be your boyfriend. So if you, if you love the Lord, marry somebody who loves the Lord, right? Think about this. Put it this way. If that person doesn't love God, well, then how do you expect him to love you? Because God's a lot easier to love than you are, right? He's perfect. So if they can't deal with God, they can't put up with him, then how do you expect him to put up with you? 
right? Marry somebody who has similar aspirations as you do. If you want to be in ministry, marry somebody who feels called to ministry. If you want to be a missionary, marry someone who aspires to be a missionary. Fifth principle, if you want, if you want to marry a godly person, then go to where the godly people are. You know, you're not going to find Rebecca in a, in a club buying her a round of kamikazes for everybody. You know what I'm saying? She's at home reading Leviticus. You got it. She's, she's leading worship somewhere. You know what I'm saying? Go to where the godly guys and girls are if you want to meet a godly person to get married to. Um, go to where those kinds of people are at. Sixth principle. Uh, abstain from physical relations before marriage. Abstain from physical relations until marriage. And then do them a lot. That's, that's what we believe, right? Isaac and Rebekah get married, and then they move, to, move in together. They get married, and then they sleep together. You know, if you really love that person, then you're going to respect them enough to honor them by waiting until marriage. And if you don't love that person, if you aren't planning to marry them, well, then you have no business touching someone who's not going to be your spouse and who's probably going to be somebody else's spouse. You're just causing pain and hurt for the future. The seventh principle is this. This is the final one. Don't just marry the person you love, but love the person you marry. Don't just marry the person you love, but love the person you marry. Isaac and Rebecca decide to get married. Did they ever fall in love? Was it love at first sight? Did they fall in love? Were they in love? You know, Isaac is out in the field meditating on the things of God. And then he looks up. Here's Rebecca coming in a camel. She gets off the camel. They shake hands, say, what's up? And then they get married, and then they move in, right? Uh, they've heard a lot about each other, but they don't actually know each other at this point, yet they still get married, and they stay married. It's, it sticks, right? The modern view of love is that love is this feeling that rolls in and out like the tide, right? One moment it's there, the next it's not. You feel it for a certain person, then you feel it for another person, and you have absolutely no control over it. You're just this helpless victim to the untethered force of love. And we say things like, oh, I was really in love, and then we fell out of love, and then he fell in love with me again, but I'm not in love with him, so I'm married to a person that I'm not in love with. And then I fell in love with another person who's actually married to somebody else, but they don't love me, so I'm sad, right? But the, the biblical view on marriage is that love is not a feeling, but it's a commitment that's characterized by actions. It's not just this untethered force or feeling. It's a commitment that you make. It's a decision you make. In Ephesians chapter 5, God's word commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. If God commands you to do something, well, that must mean that that's something that you can do. So love can't just be a feeling that we have no control over. It's a commitment that we're called to. You know, feelings of affection are something that grow, something that are cultivated, something that develop over time and work. And feelings, you know, they're they're cultivated, they're developed. So, so let us not be people who marry, do just marry someone we love, but let us be people who love the person we married, right? Who are committed to the person we married, just as God is committed to loving us. As we see in God's word, marriage is a picture of God's love and God's faithfulness to us as people. And in this story, what we see here, we look at the, the story of marriage and we see the divine romance again. 
Last week we talked about how Isaac was a picture, a foreshadowing of Jesus. Well, look at the picture here. Again, we see a foreshadowing of Jesus in the picture of marriage. We see a father who sends his servant to find a bride for his son, just as God the Father sends the Holy Spirit, who's called in the Bible the Helper, to go into the world and and gather a bride for his son. God's Word tells us that the work of the Holy Spirit is to draw people to Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about the conviction in a a heart that a person is a sinner and that they desperately need a Savior, and it points them to the grace of the Lord Jesus. This servant, right, what does he do? The, The picture of the Holy Spirit, he distributes gifts to the bride just as the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the bride of Christ. And and he leads her then on this long journey, one that she has to go on by faith. She's never seen her bridegroom face to face until the day when they finally do meet, right? And the wedding takes place and she enters into his abode and they stick it out forever together. That's the hope of the gospel. That we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned in our relationships, in previous relationships, in the relationships we're in now. But the good news of the gospel is this, that we can enter into a covenant relationship with God in which he loves us and is faithful to us, in which he forgives us of our sins and cleanses us and declares us righteous. He is the true husband. He is the true initiator. Your job is to be the bride and to be the one who responds to the call of the helper, the Holy Spirit, to come to Christ and to follow him and let him lead you and let him be the head of your life. This is the divine romance. This is the ultimate love story. And every other love story is merely a shadow and a reflection of this one. So let us be people who enter into this divine romance. Let us be people who, by God's grace, live holy lives that glorify him and lead to the ultimate fulfillment and happiness that he desires for us. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, that you are the true husband. You are the one who betrothes us, who befriends us, Lord, the one who is faithful to us, the one who keeps all of your promises to us. Lord, thank you that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, that you are our rock. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, for how you provide for us, how you lead us. We thank you for the picture of marriage. And Lord, we ask that by your Spirit you would enable us Uh, Lord, that you would fill up all of those areas where we are lacking. Lord, that you would help us in our marriages, that we would see them through to the last day. And I pray for those who have yet to begin relationships. Lord, help them to start well. And we pray that in Jesus' name, by your grace. Amen.